since 9-11, we've seen sort of this dramatic refocusing of tools and techniques that were originally developed to spy on agencies like the KGB suddenly being used against individuals. And I don't know if as a society, we've really sort of accepted, understood, or put the proper protections in place for that kind of a world. And I fear that by the time we understand it, it'll be too late to debate. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got the second part of our amazing interview with Ladar Levison, and he is the founder and CEO of a company called LavaBit, and that's a secure email provider, and he's probably most famous for being Edward Snowden's email provider back in the day when uh, he dropped his bombshells on all of us. Uh, so that's coming up in just a minute. And normally about this time, I would go through some news of the week. And there was obviously a lot of stuff because I mentioned last week, I believe that uh, two of the really big hacker conferences were happening in Las Vegas, DEF CON and Black Hat. And there's always a lot of stuff that comes out of that. I mentioned a couple things already, but uh, I'm going to be talking about that, I believe, next week with a man named Chris Romeo. So instead of going through all that now, I will go through that next week with him. And what I'd like to do this week just prior to getting into this is I know that um, uh, Ladar was talking about all sorts of sort of email topics, and we're going to get into a few more of them coming up, uh, what it means to be secure. And I just wanted to take some opportunity now to kind of do a little primer on that and let you guys know some of these terms a little bit, just in case we're talking about some of these in the interview, uh, and you're not sure what we're talking about. So really, what this is all about is what we would like to call secure communications. And, and it's extremely important, and, and Ladar is going to get into why uh, in our interview, and you'll see that in just a minute. So I want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts, what that really means, um, just from a technical level. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but just it's kind of important to break it down a little bit, give you an idea of what goes into secure communications, what we really mean when we're talking about that term. So first of all, when you're talking secure, that, that has a lot of implications to it. And a lot of people kind of get these mixed up and um and so it's kind, of, it's kind of important to distinguish what we mean. A lot of people think when we think secure, we think private, uh, which is to say that, you know, whatever message you send uh, can't be read by anybody but the person you intended um, to, to send that to, the recipient. Um, but there's also other aspects. There's integrity uh, of the message, which is to say that even if somebody maybe couldn't, couldn't kind of spy on that message and see what happened uh, or see what's going on in that message, they may be able to mess with it. Um, cause it to change. Even if they don't know exactly what they're doing, they might even be able to corrupt it or add something onto it that's extra. I mean, think about sending an email to somebody saying, please do this, and then adding on a PS, oh, and also do this, <laughs> which might have a nefarious reason. Uh, so you, even if you don't know what the original message was, you might be able to add something to it and still cause the nature of that message to change in a way that you wouldn't want to happen. So that's really what we'd more call uh, integrity, the ability of somebody to alter that message, even if they can't read it. Uh, and finally, the other thing that people really get mix, mixed up when they're talking about this topic, and when you're talking about uh, quote unquote secure communication is the notion of anonymity. Um, so that's very different from privacy and it's, and it's different from integrity. Anonymity means that really, if, you, if you're really getting down to it, that, that's, that's a metadata. That is what we call metadata. That is the information about the message, but not the message itself. And those are things that um, uh, you would want any be able to tell, ideally, except for the sender and the receiver. Now, in reality, that is one of the hardest things 
for our current email systems to handle because just by very nature of the system, if I have to get a message from Alice to Bob, um, the way that usually works is I address that message to Bob and I say it's from Alice and that message and those, those to and from addresses are basically needed to get that message through the, through the network from one end to the other. And anybody along the way, even if the message body itself, the, the part inside the message is unreadable and unalterable, um, to route that message, all the systems from one point to the other at least need to know who I'm sending it to. So the big thing, the first thing about anonymity, of course, is, again, sender receiver. And that could just be their email addresses, but it also could be their names. The, the email system allows you to send names as well as email addresses, but even though the names are just informational. Um, but the email address is, is key because if let's, uh, let's say it's, you know, Alice at gmail.com, then I want to send it to Bob at yahoo.com. I send that message. My, uh, my Google server, uh, gets it first and says, oh, he's sending this to Yahoo. So I'll send it to Yahoo's server. And then Yahoo's server gets it. And says, oh, that's for Bob. I know Bob. I'll send it to Bob's computer. So anyway, to, to route that message and all the little places in between, you, you kind of need the to and from addresses, but there's more to it than just that. And I think, um, it's important to call out that there's a lot more metadata to a message. And sometimes this metadata is just as important as the to and from. And that is things like the location of the sender and the receiver. Um, and we might know that because if, if we could tell uh, through the routing of that message what the IP addresses are of the sender and the receiver, and IP is internet protocol. So everyone on the internet basically has an address and that address is your IP address. Um, so if I can see the, the IP address of the sender and the IP address uh, the recipient, um, those usually are tied to a particular service provider, Comcast, Time Warner, Verizon, uh, your internet service provider. And due to that, um, and other factors going into how these addresses are allocated, you can often figure out the rough location of the sender and the recipient just by their IP address. But it's actually, it even gets worse than that. So the other parts of the metadata that are often very important are, are what time the message was sent, what time the message was, was received, and maybe even what time that message was read. Um, sometimes these things come with what we call read receipts, which you've probably seen if you worked at a big company, which lets you know that the recipient just read that message. Not only did they get it, but now they just read it. Um, other things like the length of the message or even the language of the message, this is all metadata. And all this information is extremely important if I'm trying to figure out what somebody is up to, uh, even if I can't read their message. Uh, in a lot of cases, metadata, and, and this has come up in some court cases and in some uh, legislation that has been proposed by Congress and um, and by the EU, uh, the metadata is actually often more important than the content of the message itself. So metadata is also important. So anonymity and hiding all that metadata so it's not available is extremely difficult to do with most modern email systems. So let's let's talk a little bit about about that. What is how we secure a message today? What what are what are the technologies involved? Well, privacy and integrity, and again that's that is making masking the content of the message and making sure that the content can't be altered. Uh, privacy and integrity are usually achieved uh, via encryption. And this word has gotten a lot of press lately because of so many things going on where uh, in the UK and in Australia, even in the United States, uh, where intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies are complaining uh, about how so much of our messaging now is becoming encrypted. And, and the math on that is solid, meaning that if you encrypt something correctly, it is nigh impossible to decrypt without having the key. 
Um, so you encrypt with the key and you decrypt with the key, often either the same key or sometimes a different key, the one that's meant for locking and one that's meant for unlocking and they're paired. Um, so if you do that right, uh, the math is, is, is sound. The math is sound and you cannot decrypt that and let you could guess at what the key values are, but if the key values are done well, you could literally take centuries for supercomputers, even all the supercomputers on the planet would take centuries to guess every possible combination. Now, of course, they could, they could get lucky, um, but generally speaking, if you pick a good enough, uh, good enough key, which is a long random value to encrypt your messages, and that's very possible today, it's very easy to do, um, then your messages are safe, and they're safe for the rest of your life and probably your children's lives as well. So encryption is done in a, at least a couple different ways. Um, we usually call that data at rest and data in motion. So let's talk about motion first. Much of the web, uh, the internet, is based on a protocol that we call HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol. Uh, you don't need to know that, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm just telling you what that stands for. Uh, and then if you look on your web browser, if you look at your web addresses that you type in, that you don't have to type that part. It fills that in for you. But you might see that sometimes that goes from HTTP to HTTPS. And that S stands for secure. And that means that the connection between your web browser, basically your computer, the connection between you and whoever it is, your, whatever website you're going to, be that Amazon or your bank, uh, your, your Gmail server, your email provider, um, whatever, whatever that website is you're trying to connect to, when that S is present, if things are done well, and I keep prefacing that and I'll tell you why in a second, but if things are implemented properly, that means that the connection between you and that site is completely secure. Now you're, because of the way the internet works, whenever you talk to some other thing out in the web, out in the big cloud that we call the internet, when you, when you talk to something out there, it's actually going through multiple hops. Uh, there's little little junction points and uh, the addressing of the internet those ip addresses i've talked about just kind of go hop to hop and so there's various places in between other little computers and routers and things that you're going to be hitting that will see your messages uh, so if it's not secure really what that means is any of the computers that that you touch that that your little packets the little chunks of your message that are sent across the internet uh, when those hit those other those other servers, if if you're not careful and if it's not encrypted, they can actually store a copy, and they usually do actually just because of how they have to do what they um, how they have to implement this protocol. They store these things locally. Now they usually just get rid of them, but they could save them. And if they're not encrypted, that means that any of these any of the computers between you and there technically could have a copy of whatever it was you were sending or receiving. And the way we fix that, because that is such a crucial issue, especially if you're doing some medical stuff or financial stuff, or if you just want your privacy, uh, is that you want that message to be encrypted. So the way they do that on the internet is they encrypt the data while it's moving, which is to say that on your computer, it's not encrypted. When it gets to the far end, it's not encrypted. But between here and there, while it's in motion, all the little chunks of that message are encrypted, or at least the, the contents of that message are encrypted. That's called data in motion. And that is accomplished through HTTPS uh, when you're working on the web. So that's all well and good. Now you've got your, your data as it's transferring through the cloud, through the interwebs, through the tubes of the internet that, that no one else along the way can see that message or alter that message. That's great. But when you're like, let's say you're sending that email that I talked about a minute ago from Alice to Bob. So if Alice is on Gmail and Bob is on Yahoo and Alice sends her message, well, it goes to Google's server first because that's her service provider, her, her email service provider. It goes to Google and then Google sends it to Yahoo's service 
uh, Yahoo's server, and then Yahoo sends it to Bob. So what that means is that is that on Google server and potentially on Yahoo server, there could be a copy of that email message just sitting there, and the message itself, the body of the message, what you the what you sent to from Alice to Bob, Alice's message to Bob could just be sitting there on that server. Now, you know, Google probably has no reason to read it, and Lord knows they have millions and millions and millions of emails going through on a daily basis. They don't have time to read them all, but they could have automated processes reading them. In fact, they do in a lot of cases because they want to kind of pick through your email. They don't care what you're telling, what Alice says to Bob, but if Alice says to Bob, hey, I'm looking to buy a new car, Gmail would be very interested to know that because then it could give you advertisements for cars. So they actually do have automated processes that poke through those email messages that are sitting on their servers uh, unencrypted so that they can provide you advertising and perhaps even save that data about you. They pick something out of there and, and they build a profile on you. So now we come to the second form of encryption, which we call data at rest. So we talked about data in motion. That is when your email is traveling through the internet or whatever it is you're transferring through the internet. While it's on the move, while, those, while that data is flowing, Nothing along the path of that email, uh, nothing along the path of that data through the internet can see what, what it contains. But if you really want to be safe, what you need to do is encrypt the, the, bot, the, message, of the, the message itself or the data itself that you're sending. And that's called, again, uh, data at rest. And there are various ways that you might encrypt that. And that's actually where most, most of this stuff falls apart. It's the hardest thing to do as an average layman um, because it's really not built into everything. And if, and if you're doing it right, you actually need to manage the keys for all that. So you've got to set up all these keys and uh, encrypt your messages. And then you've got to make sure that you've got the keys of other people that you're trying to send messages to. It's a pain in the butt. Um, there was a system that's pretty much been the gold standard for, for decades now called PGP, uh, which stands for pretty good privacy. Um, and that was uh, invented or at least specked out by a guy named uh, Phil Zimmerman. And you're going to hear, um, you're going to hear our guest refer to Phil and PGP, uh, uh, just shortly in the interview. So I want to make sure I throw that out. And the PGP follows the scheme where there's these paired keys. I've got a public key and a private key, and I encrypt my message with someone else's public key and I send it. And when they get it, they decrypt it with their private key. I'm not going to get too deep into that, but basically what that means is that the message body itself is encrypted. So it's not just encrypted while it's moving. It's actually the body of the message itself is encrypted so that even on the Gmail server at the Yahoo server, if there happens to be a copy of my email sitting there or uh, then it cannot be read, even by Google, even by Yahoo. So I've actually made it impenetrable to them. They can't alter it. They can't read it. So just to summarize, <laughs> and I know there's a, lot to, there's a lot to absorb there, but I just wanted to kind of give you an idea of how complicated this really can be. Now, uh, you, want to, you want to encrypt your message if you really want to be secure, if you really want to make sure that message is private and you want to make sure that nobody can tamper with it, then you have to encrypt it. And that means not only encrypting it while it's in transit, but encrypt it before you send it and so that the guy at the or whoever's at the other end could decrypt it and only the two of you can actually see the contents. And that brings us to the last part of what people I think often considered uh, to be secure when someone says they've got a secure connection or secure email. And that's anonymity. And that's something honestly, you don't have. <laughs> because even though the contents of these messages may be encrypted, well encrypted, uh, they still have to have like these envelopes, these wrappers, and those wrappers have to have a to and a from address. They've got to know how to deliver the content. And in order to do that, that means they basically have to expose the name of the, of the sender and the receiver and information about the sender and the receiver. Like I said, it's um, maybe not just the, the target email address and the target name, but it, 
you know, the time it's sent, the time it's received, all this sorts of stuff, all this metadata is very hard to block, very hard to hide. The service that most people go to these days, if they want to try to hide this sort of metadata and kind of hide their tracks as they surf the web, is one called Tor. Uh, that used to stand for the Onion Router. Now I think it's just Tor. Uh, if you look that up, and uh, there's a link, I've got a link on the show notes on the webpage if you want to check that out. It can explain, unfortunately, it's, it's probably pretty technical. Um, it does some pretty wacky things to try to hide your tracks as you go around the web. It's because it's so difficult. Uh, it's just, it's really hard to be anonymous. The web just wasn't built for anonymity. Uh, there are some tools, though, like Tor, that you can look at that might help uh, hide your tracks. And email services like LavaBit and ProtonMail and some of these others, I'm sure, are going to be doing what they can to mask metadata wherever they can. The only way for that really to work currently is for you to be within the same service, but maybe we'll finally get some standards around these sort of things for privacy's sake. We'll see. Now, it's time to start the second part of our wonderful interview with Ladar Levison, and where we left off last time, we were faced with the classic, classic security puzzle. Somebody comes to you and says, you have information that is on your website or within your service that we believe will help us find a nuclear bomb hidden somewhere in the city. How do you face that scenario when you're trying to protect the privacy of your customers? Is there some way we can find that can walk that line, find that balance? Well, we pick up where we left off on the second half of our interview with Ladar Levinson. Again, if you haven't heard the first one, definitely go back and check that out. And uh, for now, though, here's part two. We're a new breed of talk radio with a new breed of host and shows to entertain and inform you. It's America Out Loud Talk Radio. Shows that impact your health, honor our heroes, political talk. Shows that inspire you to live a truly authentic life. You can hear your favorite shows on networks like iHeartRadio or AHA Radio. Or just download our free apps on both Android and Apple. But we are proud to have you as one of our growing family of listeners. We are the vision of the voices... AmericaOutloud.com. Well, without a doubt, my friends, this is a game changer. It was for me, and it can be for you. I want to give you an exclusive offer today for our friends of America Out Loud. We appreciate you, and we want to show it right now with our complimentary gift. You can try this today free with our Healthy Cell Pro 7-Day Sample. Now, when I say free, I mean it is 100% free. Free shipping, no risk, no obligation, no credit card required. It's a complimentary gift from us to you. Now, Healthy Cell, it's, I'll tell you what, 90-plus nutrients are infused into every cell of your body. This product has been incredible for me personally, and I think it can be for you as well. So I want you to try it. It'll boost your energy, you'll sleep better at night, sharpens your focus, you'll feel healthier, and hopefully we'll all live longer in a beautiful, prosperous life I always talk about with you on the show. Well, I'll tell you what, you can go to the front page of AmericaOutloud.com and just click the large banner ad, and we'll have that complimentary gift right off to you. So... The crux of the matter and the, and the argument that is always brought up in these cases is, you know, the classic terrorism case or someone's going to die if we don't get this information. There is a, yeah, I mean, the classic test that I use is, is there, there's a suitcase sized nuclear weapon somewhere in New York City 
and your service holds the information as to where it's located. So how do we how do we balance the need? How do we balance the need for privacy? And I think we've demonstrated that against the need of law enforcement to fight crime and terrorism, in particular, with respect to the Fourth Amendment. If I have, and because encryption and a lot of these end-to-end encryption services, when done properly, basically takes you out of the equation. There's nothing you can do um, because the math is solid. As long as the implementation is solid, there's really nothing you, as a provider, could do at that point to provide these communications. And yet, with with you know, throughout history, the way that has worked is. You know, you, you get a valid warrant from a judge and you have a very limited scope, but a legal right that all on law enforcement does to to go to places they would not normally be able to go to. But encryption, if done well, doesn't even allow that. So is there any way technologically a backdoor obviously doesn't work? Master keys don't work. Hopefully everybody will figure that out in, in Congress. But is there any way? technologically that we could somehow honor the fourth amendment where we could protect most communications, all communications until and if we are served a valid warrant, in which case we could only open up particular communications, perhaps bound by time, bound by who's involved, that sort of thing. So, I mean, there, there are a few things there. Um, I think the first point to make is Part of the reason we're in this situation today is because the third branch of government hasn't been doing their job properly. It's the duty of the courts to remain adversarial with the executive branch and limit their power. And unfortunately, what we've evolved to is a world where the courts and judges in particular no longer give every order the proper scrutiny. Law enforcement is given the benefit of the doubt, and they take advantage of that fact quite liberally in high-profile cases. You know, it's most people don't realize this, but more than two-thirds of the judges currently sitting on the federal bench um, were at one time prosecutors. Hmm. You know, they're predisposed to favor the state and to favor law enforcement. Is that a modern phenomenon or is that common? I don't know how. It's certainly a a modern thing. I don't know how far back it goes. But I would venture to presume that, you know, if you look at the first 100 to 150 years, it probably was not that way. But it's not a straight comparison because, you know, when this country was founded, lawyers didn't really exist in the way that they exist today. You know, citizens were expected to have an understanding of the law and to be able to argue it for themselves. And it was sort of over time that we developed this more complicated legal theory um, and had to train individuals to act as representatives. And it sort of stemmed from the fact that, you know, people who were uneducated would get dragged into court and be forced to defend themselves. But it's also why we have this strong pro se tradition in our own legal system where people can defend themselves, and many do. Uh, But speaking from experience, I I can certainly attest that the legal system is no longer friendly to the individual defendant in terms of procedures and understanding um, the way it probably was 200 years ago. So 
we've seen in the UK with the with the quote unquote snoopers charter, and and we're getting we're seeing mm-hmm. rumble, rumblings now in Australia of similar of similar sort of uh, talk. Even in the US, we've seen this too. But the point I like to I'd like to make uh, is there's you can't outlaw encryption. It's just math, <laughs> and it's like trying to outlaw algebra. And and the code is already out there. Is there any point? What what do you see for the future of these kind of things? Why is it that politicians can continually seem to believe that they can do this? So it's kind of the third time today that I've received a variation of that question. <laughs> um, and we talked about it initially in this interview about how we're sort of settling this issue. Well, the UK has started to come down on the other side of the equation, and Australia is in danger of doing the same. Now, these are two countries that historically have very, very strong surveillance traditions. So for them, um, a mandate to break into any communication isn't sort of perceived the same way as it is here, for example, in the US. Um, But when looking at this in a historical context, I think one of the things to look at is the relationship between the populace and its government, because Populations that have historically um, never seen a tradition of of widespread abuse by their own government, um, they tend to be a little bit lazier when it comes to protesting an increase in state authority. Whereas countries that are on the opposite end of the spectrum uh, tend to be more uh, vigilant when it comes to acting as a check on their government's uh, overreach. And a great example of this is Germany. Um, You know, Germany has a very real history with the Stasi and their methods and tactics. And there are still people alive that remember what it was like to live under those regimes. Uh, Russia has the same. So for their citizenry, the idea of an overreaching um, autocrat is a very real threat. Whereas if you look at the UK, you know, they've always had a very love-hate relationship with government, but never sort of the open revolt that would cause them to distrust or sort of worry about a totalitarian dictator assuming authority. Um, the U.S. is somewhere in between when it comes to that. You know, we've had since our revolution, um, you know, almost 220 years now, a pretty strong tradition of a vibrant democracy. Uh, It isn't since maybe the Nixon administration that we've seen these sort of evolution of what some people are calling the imperial presidency. Mm. And, you know, Trump is just another extension of that. But, you know, every successive president since Nixon has really, in one way or another, dramatically increased the authority of the executive. And it's usually been with the tacit approval of Congress, Um, you know, assigning authority to regulatory bodies instead of defining the rules themselves, things of that nature. Um, But we're entering this world where, you know, The president now and his lieutenants have a very dangerous level of authority with very little 
check um, against it. Uh, so, but we don't necessarily have the history of abuse that causes us to be concerned with that in the way, you know, for example, the German citizenry. Right. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things evolve. I don't think certainly in the short term, we will enter a world where law enforcement will be granted that authority. Uh, of course, dramatic events can lead to dramatic changes, just like 9-11 led to the first sort of overreach in government surveillance powers. Um, you know, the National Security Agency was started with the mandate never again, and that's a reference to Pearl Harbor. When 9-11 happened, they left that feeling like they had failed their mission. When in reality, their mission was to stop a, a surprise attack from another state, not a surprise attack from a handful of rogue citizens or, or tourists in this case. Right. Um, but what it caused is them to shift their focus from state surveillance to citizen surveillance. Now, what that means in sort of tactical terms is since 9-11, we've seen sort of this dramatic refocusing of tools and techniques that were originally developed to spy on agencies like the KGB suddenly being used against individuals. And I don't know if as a society we've really sort of accepted, understood, or put the proper protections in place for that kind of a world. And I fear that by the time we understand it, it'll be too late to debate it. Yeah. Well, fear is a powerful motivator and a powerful political tool. But to answer your original premise, which is, you know, the hypothetical of, you know, a nuclear threat somewhere in this country, you know, we invest billions, close to trillions of dollars per year. Um, to protect our country against such threats through a number of different means. New York City is one of these cities that has invested millions of dollars in placing um, detectors that are supposed to pick up radiological signatures as they travel around the city. Um, you know, we tightly control travel and the transport of the types of materials that would be used for such a weapon. I think we have a lot of things in place that could and should protect us to a reasonable degree that hopefully we never need to go to a point where every communication by default must be opened by some central authority. Um, I just think that goes past a certain point because ultimately um, words and communications aren't the thing that hurt people, it's actions. And we should be basing our actions on other people's actions and not their words. So what I mean by this is that we shouldn't be mining mass data and metadata to make surveillance targets. We should be doing it the old fashioned way with boots on the ground. And when you do that, you have a lot more context in terms of making decisions 
and a lot more ways of conducting surveillance. For example, you know, putting um, microphones in the ceiling fan to listen to people's conversations. So maybe you can't intercept the telephone call, but you can listen to it uh, through some other external device. The problem is that's hard and is only going to be authorized in a situation where there's a preponderance of evidence that this person is up to no good. Right. You know, if you look at the late 90s with the end of the Cold War, um, there has been a dramatic shift since then in our state security apparatus in terms of resources allocated. And most of them have been shifted away from what's referred to as human or human intelligence towards SIGINT or signals intelligence. And what that's sort of resulted in is an, the atrophy of our intelligence agencies being able to sort of conduct old-fashioned surveillance with individuals. We've gotten so reliant on listening to people's cell phone calls and intercepting text messages and emails um, that we don't bother developing agents capable of infiltrating ISIS, for example, right. in the same way that we developed agents during the Cold War to infiltrate Russia. Um, and what's happened is we're somewhat rapidly over the last eight to 10 years seeing terrorist organizations through trial and error realize that they can't rely on electronic means for communications and that's causing us to go blind. I can put this in very real Milleristic terms, um, you know, if we look to the Obama administration, you know, in the early days of ISIS, there were a group of individuals inside the government that wanted to disrupt the communications network, the cellular network, the internet access, um, the plain old telephone system inside ISIS controlled territories, which would make it difficult for them to communicate using anything stronger than a walkie talkie. You know, we can block sat phones. We already have the assets in the air for monitoring. Those same aircraft are more than capable of jamming such communications. And groups like that don't have the resources to, to develop mil-spec communication systems that can cut through such interference. They're using consumer off-the-shelf cell phones and walkie-talkies and radios and, and sat phones. If we had disrupted that communications network, do you really think ISIS could have controlled such a large area of territory for as long as they did? I tend to think the answer is no. But the argument against doing such a thing was that if we disrupted those communications networks, we would lose the little bit of visibility into their operations that we had. Because we didn't have human assets on the ground that could provide us information about movement and things of that nature. Hmm. So there was a conscious decision at the highest levels of government not to take such an action. And it, it really stems, stems from politics and money. You know, how could the director of the NSA justify his budget when a conflict breaks out, he's not able to provide any intelligence? 
So let's let's circle back and and kind of come back to secure communications again. So why isn't email secure today? Uh, is secure email an oxymoron? I think security, the word itself, has become somewhat of a marketing term. Um, because you really have to define security in terms of secure from whom. Hmm. Yep. Um, now, if we're talking about encrypted email, one of the biggest barriers to entry is that all of the traditional tools sort of tend to talk about absolute security and protection from everyone, including, you know, yourself. Um, and as a result, they tend to make things very manual because there's this sort of fundamental law that the more automated you make a system, the more difficult it is to protect it. When an attacker knows the rules for validation, they also know what they need to do in order to circumvent it, which has made, of course, my job difficult. You know, I'm trying to develop a system for automate the automated encryption of emails across organizational boundaries. And part of the reason I couldn't use PGP out of the box is that it doesn't have the features built into it to facilitate you know, the automated key exchange securely. And for, for the listeners, PGP is pretty good privacy, which has been the gold standard for encrypted communications for a long, long time, but it's never been adopted just because it's so, so cumbersome for most people to use. Well, I mean, one of the other things to know about PGP, and, you know, Phil told me this himself, it was never created specifically for email. It's a general purpose encryption tool that I think will remain well into the future. It just so happened that email was the easiest way to transport data protected using PGP. Mm. All right. So how do we protect users from themselves? <laughs> Aren't people truly the weakest link in this whole system? Yes. Um, you know, when I set out to create dark mail, I sort of, I had to set a number of goals. Um, and they evolved after uh, extensive feedback. Um, but it was that feedback that led me down a road um, different from PGP, which was the original plan. But what I've tried to do with dark mail is design a system that leaves, that boils security down to the complexity of a user's password and the strength of an endpoint's defenses. Because my theory is that at least that gives people a fighting chance. But you're correct. You know, I can't protect everybody all the time. What I can do is develop tools that lead to good habits. And that's a very tricky art. Yes. Um, but uh, let me put it a different way. <laughs> it's a, a sort of ideological debate that I get into frequently. Um, but there are a lot of other good cryptographers out there, um, uh, particularly in this day and age when cryptography has come into vogue. Unfortunately, most of them are not also information security experts because to an information security expert, encryption is only one tool in a rather large quiver. It happens to be a very important arrow but it is not the only one we have at our disposal. And when you talk about information security, it really 
is the sort of art of creating systems that lead to good habits. All right. So in your opinion, who should be using secure email and secure messaging services in general? Is this, is, should everybody use this or is there just people that quote unquote need it? Are there, yeah, do we all need Snowden level protection, for example? So for someone like Snowden, their life depends on being able to communicate privately and the life of their associates. And for a number of people in other countries, that case remains the same. Because in some countries, um, political opposition can lead to your arrest and dismemberment. Um, for us, as U.S. citizens, you know, we certainly have an increasing number of very real threats. Very few of them tend to involve life and death, but a lot of them involve um, sort of financial safety, um, the security of our identities, um, our assets, uh, things of that nature. So yes, everybody should use encryption because they don't want to be, you know, it's the low-hanging fruit um, anecdote. Or to put another way, it, when you're walking in the forest with a friend and you see a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to <laughs> outrun the person standing next to you. Yes, I make that analogy all the time. So if anybody has any questions about whether or not they should be using encryption, just think of the bear. <laughs> um, and... You don't want to be the guy that finds out his lunch was eaten by somebody else because he wasn't communicating securely. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's what's happening on an almost daily basis. You know, I'm sure Hillary Clinton and John Podesta didn't think much about email encryption until after the most recent election. Right. Which uh, same so with Sony Pictures. Yeah. Um, there have been a number, and it's a gro ever growing list of high profile breaches in the last year or two um, that are just reminders of how important email is in terms of online communication and what it holds, and it needs to be protected. Well, and the other thing I, you know, two, two points that I might quickly that I, is first of all, the internet is forever. So it's one thing to say that I don't want it encrypted now. If you, if, if you, you can't go back and encrypt it later and it's out there and it's going to remain out there on some server, whether it's, you know, a Google server or some hard drive in the NSA's Utah facility forever. And if some, you know, we all say things that we might regret later. And if, if they want to, and you know, if someone were to comb through every email communication you ever made, could they find something to, you know, maybe pursue? I think they could. So point one, point two, and it, you basically made this earlier is that there's a big difference between targeted surveillance and mass surveillance. And for me, uh, encrypted end-to-end -end communications and, and it, you know, emails and messaging and, and such, by adopting that widespread, everybody, without without exception, what we're basically doing is we're, we're forcing things to go back to the way things used to be, as you said before earlier, and that is take away the easy button. The, the, you know, we should not be allowing through our laziness the ability to do mass surveillance sitting behind a desk in, in some facility, you know, in the middle of Utah. We, you know, we back in the day, they actually had to do some gumshoe work. They had, they had some, foot, some shoe leather work. They had to get out there and, and, you know, and spend some time, spend some money, risk some resources to actually target just the few people that they felt 
we're, you know, we're really worthy of surveillance. And, and unlike today, where it's, it's until and if we get to the point where we encrypt everything, mass surveillance is just too easy. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, 100 years ago, there was no FBI as we think about it today. So let's all right. Let's come full circle. Let's go all the way back to LavaBit Act Two. So you you have since relaunched LavaBit, and I believe it was January twentieth of twenty seventeen. Is there any any significance to that date? Uh, I just thought it was a good day to roll out um, and begin testing the new service. Um, you know, this relaunch is going to be a long road. Um, we still have a lot of pieces yet to build, um, yet to roll out. And, you know, we've been trying to open it up slowly as things are ready. And what we did on, on January 20th is we brought the system back online um, for pre-existing customers so that we could begin uh, testing some of the updates we've made to the system over the last couple of years. Um, and we, we started doing pre-sales. And, of course, on July 4th, we started allowing some of those pre-sale customers to start using the service in what we call trustful mode. Uh, we've been developing end-to-end -end clients. Uh, we just don't feel like they're ready for people to put their lives on. So how is this service different than the original LavaBit service, if any? Is it the same service, or are there improvements or changes you've made since the first time around? So the long-term goal of this service is to put, is to give you options for how to control um, your private encryption key. The first generation of the service required the server to have access to it. Um, this new service doesn't have that requirement anymore. Um, the difficulty is that we need to build tools that allow you to assert that control. And it's those tools that we're continuing to work on. Internally, this server has been designed um, to operate in sort of a split mode where it no longer has access um, to people's email. The problem is you need to be a programmer in order to take advantage of that. Is LavaBit in any way compatible with existing email services? If I want, if I've got a LavaBit account and I want to talk to somebody on Gmail account, how does, how does that work? Certainly. Um, the way it's designed is it will use the most secure method of communication available. So if Gmail begins supporting dark mail, your messages will travel, um, encrypted end-to-end. -end. If the other service only supports transport encryption, which tends to be the de facto standard in the industry today, um, then that's what it'll use. And when we roll out this next generation of clients, one of the key features about it is that it will tell you when you type in somebody's email address, what level of security you're going to get before you compose the message. Awesome. That's fantastic. So if people want to sign up for this service now, and I, I, you say it's rolling out and you're starting to open it up, is it open up to everybody yet? And if not, when will that day come? When, do you have an idea when that might be? So we open it up to new users on July 4th. Um, they'll have to use a legacy client like Outlook or Thunderbird or something of that nature in order to access the current service. Um, but yeah, it's opened up and you know, one of the fundamental changes about this new relaunch service and the old one is encryption is now the new default. You know, one of the things I learned, um, you know, through my experiences in 2013 is that uh, I, I can no longer in good faith operate a service where I store plain text data for people. Um, so, you know, 
in contrast to the old system where you had to activate the, the feature, um, it's now the new default and everybody's data is protected by, de by default, coupled with we've done some stuff on the back end to sort of protect us against the type of attack that occurred in 2013. Uh, we now embed our TLS keys um, in hardware so that we don't have access to them. So if the feds were to come knocking today, it would be a different story. Yeah, it doesn't mean they don't have another creative way of breaking through this security. You know, ultimately, we need to get to a world where users assert the level of control that they're comfortable with. You know, for some users, that might be trustful mode. For others, it might be what we call cautious mode. And for others, it might be paranoid mode. And we'll have to save descriptions of those three different modes for our next podcast. <laughs> so I've got to ask, because I'm sure the listeners are thinking this. So let's say that, you know, some of the audience is thinking, well, that, that would be pretty cool. I'd like to have some secure email, some kick butt secure email. But if I sign up for this service, am I going to be attracting unwanted attention from intelligence agencies? I certainly don't think so. Um, I mean, we're really sort of entering a world where encryption is quickly becoming the default. Maybe we're not 100% there yet. Um, maybe, you know, signing up for this service in conjunction with a number of other factors like using Tor and uh, owning a black phone might get you a second look. Um, but I like to hope, um, you know, I have 400,000 users. 99.999% um, of them are honest, upstanding individuals. So, all right. So if, if folks in my audience wanted to learn more about protecting their privacy and securing their devices other than LavaBit, uh, if they just want to do some learning, if they want to make it look or maybe look at other types of products in this kind of realm, uh, what resources do you personally recommend? Are there websites, books, documentaries, things like that? I try to stay out of that game. Um, <laughs> You know, it's such a complicated topic that needs to be personalized that it's hard for me to give a carte blanche recommendation for anybody. Um, and that was sort of one of the realizations I made when I first started out with dark mail is that one solution isn't going to be best for everybody. It really depends on an individual's threat model and who you're trying to protect your data from. So just as a last question, as, as we go out, if and I always like to give the audience some options, what if people have, have drunk the Kool-Aid, they believe now that privacy is important. And by the way, if you haven't already, go watch Glenn Greenwald's TED Talk on privacy. It's fantastic. And if you're not convinced, that should do it. Uh, what do you... What would you recommend people do if they want to get involved? If they want to make a, you know, I don't know if they want to make a statement, maybe that's a strong way to put it. But if they if they want to take charge of this, if they want to kind of forward this agenda uh, of privacy being important, what would you recommend they do? I mean, I think if you want to become an expert, you have to work with the tools directly and you have to look at the code that powers them so that you understand how they work. Um, because when you get to a point where you can contribute improvements to that code, then you probably understand it well enough to trust it. I think it's we're entering a world where it's hard to take anything off the shelf in a closed black box and assume it works the way people say it does. Um, because even if it does work that way, it isn't it until you have a deep understanding of how it works that you can make effective decisions about how to use it. 
So for somebody who's not technically involved, for somebody who's not a software engineer like the two of us, what would... Yeah. I mean, if you're not a software engineer, you're in a, in a very dangerous place because now you have to trust the recommendations of others. And that is why I try and stay away from making carte blanche recommendations. Um, because a recommendation that's well-suited for one individual may not be for another. Absolutely. All right. Well, Ladar, thank you very much for the, the talk. It was very interesting talking to you today. Um, any parting words for the audience before we take off? Good luck and God bless. <laughs> Fair enough. And back at you. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us. And there you have it, the second part of my two-part interview with Ladar Levison. Again, go back and listen to that first one if you missed it. It's important to get it all together in context. Uh, the last time we talked to him, we kind of went through what happened initially with his service and why he had to shut it down and why he did that for the sake of his customers. It was an amazing story, uh, and the, he, he showed extreme courage in my view. And uh, it's well worth a listen. Go back and make sure you check that out if you haven't already. And thanks for listening. This is this is not an easy topic, folks. This is this is tough stuff. This is the kind of things that we need to be thinking about and understanding as a democracy, how we value privacy versus the need for law enforcement to do their job. Uh, it's tough. It's really tough. So I appreciate him coming on the show, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything he said. It's just really important for us to have that conversation, to have that debate, and to think through these scenarios and decide as a as a country, as a nation, as a planet, as a democracy, how we want to handle these situations, how we find the right balance. All right, so we got a tip of the week, and I will just go ahead and shamelessly plug Lava Bit. Uh, my tip of the week is go sign up. Uh, even if you don't necessarily buy into all the need for privacy or whatever, at least you can think that we're supporting the effort of somebody trying to make make a point, make a stand, make a statement. And go out there, get yourself an account, tell your friends and family to get an account. Uh, and I think right now the accounts actually even cost money. I think the lowest level plan they currently offer is 30 bucks a year, but that's chump change. And it's really important that we support efforts like this and people like this and register our support, uh, putting our money where our mouth is and saying, you know what? Privacy is important. I, I'm not sure if this guy's even getting it exactly right. We may still have to work this out, but you know what? I'm going to register my support. And if you don't go to LavaBit, look at some other services. There's ProtonMail, uh, Privacy Abroad. Uh, there, there are other services you could be looking at that, that do cost money, and they cost money because they're not making money off of you. They're not selling your information. In situations like this, you would need to make sure they've got a profit-making business model, and that profit-making model is not selling your information. So it's important for many reasons that we support efforts like this. And we do actually put some money down on that. So anyway, my tip of the week, very simple, very straightforward. At least check out LavaBit. Go to LavaBit.com, look at the service, read through the testimonials, read through the, the explanations of why they're doing what they're doing and why it matters. And I'll tell you what, one more bonus tip. Uh, go read a book called Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. And uh, I'm, not making money, I'm not making money on any of this stuff. These are just things that I think that you guys should check out. And if you read that book and if you check out LavaBit and you still come away thinking... You know, I, I don't think it's important. Fine. That's fine. But check these things out. I think it might uh, have an impact on you. Now, tune in next week. We're going to have a great discussion with a friend of the show, Chris Romeo, uh, who's a security expert. And then we're going to talk in detail about the things that came out of DEF CON and Black Hat, the two big hacker conferences held in Las Vegas uh, last week. Very interesting stuff, things that you'll need to know, things that are just interesting to know. Uh, Chris has got some great stories, uh, so we'll be talking to him next week. 
Uh, until then, in the meantime, update your software, your phones, your computers, your laptops, your tablets. Stay up to date. When these hacker conferences come out, they release all sorts of bugs that they found, and they do it responsibly. So they told all the manufacturers about these things ahead of time so they could get their updates out. But you've got to get those updates to be protected. So uh, these things are out in the wild now. The, all the bad guys know about them. So if you want to make sure you're protected, you've got to make sure that you're up to date. So make sure you do that. And this is uh, one of the last times you'll get a chance to send me your stories about backups uh, to win a free copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, I'm going to be doing another one of my Castle Defense 101 classes where we're going to talk about backups and why they're so important and how you can do it for yourself. Uh, and I want to hear about your horror stories or maybe your success stories. Tell me a situation where you lost everything and you wish you'd done a backup or maybe the time when you finally got talked into doing that backup and it saved your bacon. Tell me those stories. Send me, a, send me your stories at Carrie Parker at AmericaOutloud.com. The most interesting story I'll read on the air and I will send you a free digital copy of my book for thank you. Get those to me soon. And until then, folks, as always, don't get caught with the drawbridge down. Stay safe. I will see you next week. 